Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Peter Barrett, co-founder of Playground Global, a firm that has raised over $800 million to invest in deeply technical and transformative technologies. Before starting Playground, Peter served as CTO at CloudCarp, a cloud-based consumer product startup. He also held executive positions at Microsoft and Web TV. This week's show is a bit of a departure from our normal episodes that are much more focused on firm and fund management. But I was really excited to talk to Peter about both new technologies, but also the art of funding these type of hard science companies. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high limit corporate credit card, and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, You'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. If you're investing in private companies, then you need to know about Sidecar, the latest player in venture tech. Sidecar is on a mission to enable anybody to be a capital allocator by creating tools built specifically for today's venture investor. Their powerful software removes the headache of organizing private investments, so that you can focus on making deals, not spreadsheets. Whether you're syndicating your first or 50th deal, Sidecar X is your silent operating partner, handling all back office functions in a single place. Sidecar always has your back so that you never have to worry about chasing subdocs, lost wires, or late K1s. In the spring of 2021, as private market activity continued, we launched Allocate, and Sidecar was an instrumental part of our success. Their products supported our fundraise in a way that delighted my investors and kept me apprised in real time throughout the process. Their platform allowed Allocate to close our seed round efficiently and effectively, so we could get back to our mission of increasing access to top private alternatives. Visit sidecar.io to learn more and join the waitlist for their limited beta. Peter, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I've been excited about this conversation, given how much of a technical background, and we don't have a lot of guests with the level of technical chops that you have. But before we go into what you're doing today at Playground Global, tell us a little bit about your career. How did you start and how did you get into the world of investing? So I'm a software engineer. I've been writing code more or less every day for the last 42 years. I've built software platforms. I've built uh, software startups. I've spent a lot of time in and around trying to figure out what are the technologies that that um, move things forward. As a sort of serial entrepreneur and building these companies and working with a bunch of very smart people over the years, came to a point where wanted to build the venture firm that you know I wished I had when I was out starting companies. And fortunate to have a bunch of partners who I had known over the years who had the same same aspiration. So before starting investing full-time, not only did you have this engineering background, but you were a consumer of venture capital having started some companies. Were there any things in particular that you saw missing from the venture model that you wanted to bring forth in any firm that you created? We'd certainly seen a trend uh, that you know, there were 
these dynamic evolutions of technologies of sort of driving opportunities, um, investable opportunities in, in technically deep startups. But there was a growing gap between those interesting technologies and the appetite from you know, the then venture firms to invest in the physical layer, to invest in silicon, to invest in things that had deep technical risk, right? There was a lot of apps and B2B and, you know, that everything was sort of in, ensconced in this terrarium of, of application-only worlds, which weren't going to serve the evolution of AI that needed sensing and actuation, right? It, otherwise, it was just a brain in a jar. Or working on a, <clears throat> on a phone app was not going to yield a quantum computer anytime soon. We not only saw a need for a venture firm that could deeply engage with technical entrepreneurs and understand their journey and their victories and defeats and trust their uh, technical aspirations, uh, but also to have the willingness to really engage in these, you know, these extraordinarily risky transformative technologies. I agree that the vast majority of firms are very traditional in terms of the type of businesses they back, meaning enterprise or consumer. And yet, while there has been more energy around companies that are in deep tech over the last four or five years, it's still met with a lot of reservations from limited partners, given that there is this ongoing belief that these companies take years to reach commercialization, a lot of dollars. Uh, start off as, in many cases, science projects. How do you think about mitigating that risk? And how have your past experience instructed how you look at the early stages of investing in these type of companies? Coming up with a repeatable platform for underwriting technical risk um, is something that we've been working very hard on over the last five years. We are, I think, you know, now that we're towards the end of fund two, I think we've sort of reduced that to practice in ways that we're pretty happy with. Uh, and a lot of that involves being able to build your own internal technical roadmaps, right? To be able to not just surf the zeitgeist, but to build upon collaborations with companies who are producing new results in computation or automation or robotics and so on. And candidly look over their shoulders to understand what their customers are doing with these a quantum computer or a extraordinary next generation high performance computing platform or an automation platform and be able to have that inside knowledge allow you to build these longer term roadmaps and take advantage of the nexus of opportunity that's created by the advent of a quantum computer by the advent of, of these new classes of technologies and i think that having technical resources on staff right we have a bunch of scientists and engineers besides the venture team uh, that are that in-house resource to create those roadmaps. Um, but you're also sitting next to, in a facility, we have a 70,000 square foot facility in Palo Alto, where many of our companies live with us. And so if you want to go and talk to the scientists who actually invented that category and, and collaborate with them on, you know, what do you think the world looks like 10, 20, 30 years from now? Um, that's a unique resource, which simply isn't present in, in uh, many, other, many other firms. That appetite and interest in underwriting those technical risks, uh, mixed with you know, a framework of testable hypotheses against investments and subsequent rounds, I think is yielding some pretty, pretty good results. And that you know, as an engineer, and you know, all, of, all of my partners have built you know, they're all engineers, they've all built platforms, they've all been through that journey. 
uh, it's very natural to be able to build these theses and and uh, execute against what is a growing corpus of really transformative companies. So as you look at these uh, transformative companies, many of them are driven by very tough technical problems that need to be solved. But if they can solve those issues, there's no question about the market opportunity that is ahead of them. And in today's environment, we've in really the last 19 months, we've seen two things happen. Number one, we have seen a supply of capital unlike anything we've ever seen going into venture-backed companies or companies in general that are within technology. And the second is the speed of how quickly these rounds are done. How do you think about, you mentioned something about repeatable processes to mitigate technical risk. How has that changed over the last 19 months, given that you may not have the same cycles to work with to be able to make a determination on some of these companies? Yes, there's been a lot of um, lot of capital recently. Um, yeah, we've had nearly three X AUM, a three X AUM into the fund this year alone in uh, in new investments. You know, I think there is actually a gap in the market on very technical, very hard to underwrite companies that nobody really understands what they have, uh, and that on a number of occasions uh, deals have been brought to us by by other VC firms of these guys seem really smart. We have no idea what they're talking about. Can you guys walk us through what they have? Or, you know, what do you think? That's a common pattern for us. But I think people, as, as funds have got larger and there's more money coming into, the, uh, coming into the domain, people are willing to trade off uh, technical risk for valuation. And we find a lot of these really fascinating, you know, testable hypotheses to not be suffering from the time pressure or the valuation inflation that we see in other in other domains. Now, you know, we've had some of these companies that nobody would touch. We write a check and, you know, they're five X in five months, which is for some of these which which do have larger capital requirements requirements is gratifying. But we we've taken time on diligence of some of these companies where it's just been us, and we've had a long time to do it, and we've got comfortable with the opportunity, uh, and don't see quite the fevered inflation of uh, price and reduction in decision time that other folks have seen, I think. So then, you know, as I, as I think about some of the things you just said, it strikes me that in many cases, you're acting as the signal for other funds as they follow on, for example, or maybe even co-invest directly in terms of being able to underwrite some of the technical diligence, really understanding the depth of the technical difficulty. But it also suggests that perhaps the number of players that are going to be follow-on players might be limited relative to somebody that's investing in a traditional B2B enterprise company. How do you think about investing, you know, when you look at things like initial versus reserves? knowing that the follow-on capital market might not be as heavy as, you know, some more traditional sectors? Well, so I think that we've repeatedly shown that, you know, our seed and Series A investments in these very esoteric uh, technologies uh, that are now raising at three, four, five billion dollars can attract a, a pretty broad spectrum of later stage capital. And the way that I think we've been able to do that 
is partially spending a lot of time with you know sophisticated people training them up on how stuff works right that you know to the uninitiated it's not obvious why one quantum computer architecture is better than the other but if you engage with later stage capital and spend time with them for years which we have done with you know psyquantum with a number of our other companies you have the opportunity to sort of share your process and share the you know the insights that you've gained because you have lunch with them every day because you've written code for them because you've been in the building with them um, and i think you know we met we met the relativity space guys when they were you know 13 people and now they have a billion dollars in the bank uh, and a lot of that came from work one of my partners had done in additive manufacturing, which led to a number of investments, but gives him the opportunity to be very, you know, to be very clear with later stage capital as to why we invested, why we understand the opportunity, and why we think that's a that's an extraordinary company. So, I think one thing that you know, one of the pleasures of of having these broad and deep later stage um, collaborators is that you do get to work with smart people and you have the pleasure of introducing them to these innovations and these novel technologies, which you've seen emerge within the context of the playground building. And there's no singular pleasure than being, you know, getting smart people to understand this Promethean fire that's been created and put them in a position to underwrite these later stages. One of the things I really love, I was looking at the website and it says that the investment thesis is centered around investing between the improbable and impossible. And it suggests something that's very difficult, but not so difficult that it's not reasonably possible to accomplish. Tell us what that means, actually, in very basic terms. What makes a company a playground company where it fits between that improbable and impossible? If it's obvious, everybody can do it, right? And that it's harder to compete when... You know that you can see from thirty thousand feet that this thing is, is is going to go. The ones we really like are the ones where there's an outrageous proposition uh, that is followed by testable hypotheses. That you know the expectation is that most of these should fail. Now we we haven't had enough failures yet, so we may be a little too close to the improbable and not up against the impossible enough. We do see companies which are proposing something that we simply don't know how to do or the laws of physics will not allow. And in this market, they're getting funded too, um, but, but not by us. I mentioned earlier that we spent a lot of time on, on building roadmaps. We also spent a lot of time on doing experimental investigations of a domain, right? And that may be reproducing a company's results to see whether you know, the, the, there's at least a, a, an agreement that such a thing is possible. Um, we've done a bunch of work uh, within our labs at Playground where, for example, my team decided that they would test the viability of hydrogen for aviation by adapting a jet engine to run on hydrogen and ammonia. Uh, and we're now scaling that up to a Gulfstream 2 APU to demonstrate that it works at scale. And that investigation led us to an investment in you know, in universal hydrogen, which are going to be flying 50 passenger jets or 50 passenger turboprops uh, next year, right? And so knowing, knowing what is physically impossible, right? The physics doesn't compile, 
you know, I'm I'm notorious for for complaining about autonomous driving that we don't know how to do it, and even if we did, it's not useful to anybody. You know, those kinds of things. We we if if things are just demonstrably false, then we don't we don't pursue them. But things which may be true that we won't know until we go through the Series A or we we test a hypothesis with some amount of capital. We love that kind of stuff, and many of our most successful companies came to us with those kinds of outrageous claims, but turned out to be true and have been true at every step. Uh, so it's it's okay to take the risk, but unless you have testable hypotheses that allow you to continue to double down at every stage, then you know you can't just say, "Look, I'm going to build a quantum computer in ten years. I need a billion dollars." You have to, at every point, verify that your outrageous claims can actually be rendered in some physical reality, which which all of our successful companies have done. Now, as you think about these successful companies and taking it a level deeper to the founder level, and of course, one of the prerequisites, as you've mentioned, is having that technical experience within whatever field or solution they're building. But when you look at the ultimate founder DNA, are there certain characteristics that you've found to be thematic of some of the founders that have been successful in building these type of companies? Uh, I looked for a couple of properties. Um, one is curiosity. Deep, deep curiosity, and why is it this this way and not some other way? That there's, you know, obviously drive, like not being afraid to fail, always, always be ready to belly up and make it happen, and do it twenty four seven. But an important and a somewhat counterintuitive uh, property, I think, of most of our entrepreneurs is humility, which they're almost always the smartest people in the room. Um, but they're still willing to take input, right? And they're still willing to change their mind about what they're doing and be responsive to, you know, orthogonal input. You know, I think those three, those three properties are, are common in the partnership. I think they're common in the, in the entrepreneurs. And I think they're certainly valued within the companies, you know, up and down. And I think that's how you make progress. And those, you know, those are very much the foundations of, of science as well, that you do need drive, but there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. And there is a, you know, you can't be dissuaded or distracted from your purpose, but you have to be subject to testing the hypothesis and data, and you have to be responsive to what's true or not. And so, yes, technical depth is important, but those those characteristics of curiosity, drive, and humility are, are, are super important. I'm also curious, as you work with these founders, obviously, you're having these consistent discussions about the product, about the business itself. But take us inside the boardroom for a second. I know you, you, you sit on several boards. And my presumption is in many cases, you are one of the more technical people on the board, uh, particularly when other VCs are investing. What role does somebody like yourself that is very deeply technical play? Because a lot of your entrepreneurs are also very technical. Versus some of the other voices in the room that are more perhaps sales and business oriented. How do you create that right balance? And where exactly have you seen yourself fit in the best? That's really been instructed by your engineering and technical background. Well, first and foremost, when I do show up to the board, it, it, it wasn't three months ago I lost all that group of people, right? That I've been 
engage with the engineering groups. I've been talking to the software engineers. Um, I've been having lunch with them every day if they're in the building. That you know, by the time we're in the boardroom, I have a very good idea about what the you know what the technical progress looks like. I have a very good idea about what are the opportunities given the, the current state of the company to to push innovation in certain areas. What's the feasibility of approaching a, a new engagement? Really down to the fundamentals of the technology. And so many of these companies, the choices that you make in the boardroom are dictated by the progress of the technology and the readiness or, or the opportunities that have been discovered in the interim. And so I feel like we always have a, a bit of an unfair advantage with our peers who we do, we do spend a lot of time with because we also want to share that, um, share that context. But I do feel like it's cheating sometimes when I know that this proposition about this partnership, I know it's possible. I don't have to you know, I, I already am up to speed on the reason why that is the obvious next choice to make. We also we also know that having that level of understanding about the readiness of a particular um, particular technology allows us to preempt rounds in ways that other people don't. That was certainly the case of you know we've I had my team reproduce the results of one of these companies after we led the Series A, and that led us to preempt the the Series B, which led to a 5X step up in five months when the national labs understood what they had as well, right? So it's it's that kind of intimacy with with the teams down to the rank and file engineers working on the program that I think does give us an unfair advantage. The other thing that I wanted to, to dig into is this concept, and you and I talked a little bit about this before the podcast started, is all of these large issues that are at play, whether it is, you know, we, obviously we've seen COVID completely ravage the entire world over the last 19 months, climate, which has changed. And you've been on record saying that you actually don't believe we're in the industrial revolution, where many people today would say that we've been in this fourth industrial revolution for some time. And some people even say we're not in the early stages, but maybe we're in the, the mid stages. Tell us a little bit about, about what you mean when you say that, and how does that relate to what is hap- what is likely to happen ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know the argument that the computing revolution really hasn't happened yet, and the industrial revolution really hasn't happened yet, really stems from some of the surprising insights that have come out of largely Cyquantum, but some of the other other companies. The realization that we really don't know how to do chemistry yet, right? That all our industrial processes are guessed at, the catalysts and mechanisms that we use for any non-trivial chemistry are discovered, not engineered, right? We, the, some significant percentage of the world's energy um, is used to create ammonia in the Harbour-Bosch process that keeps 3 billion of us alive that wouldn't exist if that process didn't exist. But, you know, we do it at extreme pressure and temperature and nature does it at room temperature in dirt and we haven't the slightest idea how it works. You know, we've had high temperature superconductors for 30 years. We have no idea how they work. We don't know how most of our basic medicines work. You know, there are 10 to the 60 small molecules. We use ex- exactly 0% of them for therapeutics, and the ones we do have are, are discovered, not, not engineered. So if, if you define industrial revolution, see, revolution as agency over physics, agency over chemistry, then we're, we're not there. We're in the butterfly collection stage of civilization, right? And that 
you know, we know what questions to ask. We know what algorithms to run. We just don't have the machines to run them on. Um, but those machines are, you know, a handful of years away. And that, you know, I, uh, we were talking earlier about this coronavirus thing that you may have heard of. His genome would comfortably fit on an Atari cartridge. And it's embarrassing that we've all been trapped indoors for, for two years and millions of us have died. And, you know, there is a parade of maladies that, behind that that we need to be, build technologies to address and understand. And we, you know, it's, it's humiliating that we are so early in that, in that process and there's untold human suffering that attends that. And the technologies we use for energy are embarrassing. The digging it out of the ground and burning it is no way to run a civilization. And it's, it will end us all unless we come up with technologies that, that give us an alternative path. And I think, you know, physics allows many other solutions that we will be perfectly comfortable with. We are largely held back from those by the crappy computation we have. And both improved classical and quantum will, will really change the game there. Uh, and I think that there are, you know, the nexus of opportunity to invest in companies that take advantage of those for, for therapeutics, for materials, for chemistry, for energy is an unlimited opportunity to create wealth and create value, um, but necessary for our survival. If you were to look at the things that are limiting those type of things from happening at the, at the speed that you think they could happen and they should happen, what are some of those limiters? Is it a function of capital, regulatory, technical talent, desire to start these type of companies, or is it something else? There are a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of scientists who have novel results who want to reduce them to practice that are looking for capital, right? And, and we think we have a role in, in filling many of those. I think some of them are waiting for the enablers of, of things like quantum and, and better computation. You know, there is an extraordinary siphoning of intellectual and actual capital into nonsense that would easily be uh, make a lot more money going after these kinds of these kinds of richer opportunities, and that I don't want to tee off on you know Bitcoin and NFTs and all that nonsense, but I really see that as Nero's fiddle, while the world is actually on fire, and that money I think would be better served answering some of these questions and pouring into these opportunities. There are clearly things that uh, for bounded amounts of capital will move us forward. You know, I mentioned. You know, the, the, the chemistry and materials, so many of these opportunities don't require billions of dollars in order to, to prove or disprove the hypothesis. It's not like we don't know how to do it. It's not like we don't have the, you know, the many testable hypotheses in the physics and chemistry and materials that will yield these results. Um, but we just don't have enough capital that's focused on that and willing to take, willing to take a risk on that. And then you've got other funny dynamics of, you know, the people assume that one technology is ready to go and, you know, not like autonomous driving nonsense or, you know, direct air capture or various other things where we don't have, we don't know how to do it at scale yet. Um, but for one-tenth of the investment or one-hundredth of the investment that have gone into, say, autonomous vehicles, you could have a, you know, photonic-driven uh, self-replicating uh, direct air capture technology that could be viable within a handful of years, right? So I think we're, you know, I think we're drawn to invest in 
God forbid, Zuckerberg's meta or other things, which are just we don't need and aren't going to make the world a better place and aren't going to return the kinds of, of uh, returns that investing in real transformative technology, investing in energy, investing in, you know, at the boundary of computation, life sciences is going to yield. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening would agree with the statement that more capital should be available for companies that are truly creating things that are transformational versus incremental. But from your vantage point, if you were to wave a wand and look to deploy capital in certain areas where you think are going to make the most fundamental change, can you maybe define a few of those things specifically? There's a real opportunity in these, what we call fulcrum technologies around decarbonization, around energy, uh, around you know technologies like mRNA. We have a great mRNA company in the portfolio that was you know, we invested in long before it was a thing, but is really a blending of computation and, and that extraordinary new set of tools. And there are many other companies in, in that pipeline that fit that category, right? The, if, if there is one thing I would say, it's the application of computation to the physical world. The um, new classes of therapeutics and new mechanisms that are possible once you can directly compute a solution, once you can directly engineer something all kinds of novel therapeutic modalities, all kinds of novel digital platforms that allow progress in that, in that domain. The application of quantum computing to materials, the ability to design you know, superconductors that run at 300 Kelvin, the ability to visit and understand how they work. That opens up this incredible nexus of opportunity of energy storage and transmission and motors and tokamaks and you know, for want of unlocking one basic mechanism, right? Uh, all the material science around energy storage, right? You don't have to make batteries out of lithium. Uh, there's any number of, number of battery chemistries that um, are possible that we can design and not, not guess at. The opportunity to create catalysts for photofuels to be able to, you know, directly turn photons into, into chemical bonds, which are, you know, uh, solar panels are great. There's a limit to how efficient they can be. And they make the wrong thing. They make electrons and not chemical bonds, right? So catalysts that directly turn sunlight into, uh, into useful chemistries, things that use that for fixing carbon, things that use that for fixing nitrogen. I'm, I'm giving you examples of really fundamental core technologies. It's not about finding capital to build a, you know, a three gigawatt solar farm in the middle of the Northern Territory in Australia, which... Some of our friends are doing, but it's about those fundamental mechanisms that turn into industrial processes that scale into things that things that really move the needle. And so those fulcrums exist, you know, in in materials, in chemistry, in medicine, at the boundary of computation and, and the physical world. And so, you know, AI is there, right? The idea that AIs that cannot sense and actuate, that cannot touch and learn, that cannot automate the world can't learn about anything useful um, and our you know, brains in jars. So having physical things, having robots that, or sensing an actuation that touches the real world is, is very powerful. Again, at the boundary of computation and, and the physical world. Can you actually touch on AI? Because I think AI is something that has been widely talked about, widely invested behind, but I still find that many people either misunderstand or mischaracterize AI. Can you help us maybe just from, a, from your own understanding, how do you think about meaningful AI? 
in terms of really reshaping and transforming the future for the better? There's a spectrum of understanding of AI, right? And there is the very practical, incredibly useful, incredibly powerful computational tool um, that's exemplified by things that are, you know, the uh, language models are enormously successful. There's a bunch of things that were physically not possible before in perception. All of those are incredibly useful tools that need infrastructure, they need hardware acceleration, they need software acceleration, they need, you know, frameworks to apply those to industry to do useful things and love those. And we're invested in a bunch of both hardware and software in that space, and we think that that space is incredibly important. Now, there's a different AI, which is the imaginary one, where we've conflated perception with cognition, where we think that because GPT-3 sounds eerily human, that it has anything to do with our the way our brains work. We don't know how to make AIs to drive cars. We don't know how to make AIs that have anything like human intelligence or cognition, and we have no idea how to do it. And it might be next year, it might be decades hence. And I think people blend those together, right? They, you know, the, you see creepy animated robot faces and you're like, oh my God, it looks human and it can talk and you can have a conversation with TPT3 where, you know, the AGI is just around the corner. And so I, I draw a bright line between the really useful AI, which is, you know, is getting better largely because of extreme increases in the amount of computation thrown at it. Uh, which are, you know, well ahead of Moore's law, and that we're kind of running out of steam on how those models work, and you, they can only scale, they can only continue to scale exponentially for so long. And we absolutely need breakthroughs and, you know, gradient descents decades old now, we, we need other mechanisms that can continue to produce those kinds of AIs. I do think that, you know, we, we, we may chip away at the the more cognitive kinds of AIs. And I, there's some interesting work in uh, mixing together, you know, symbolic and and more transparent AI with, you know, blending that with the best of deep learning and these neurosymbolic approaches, I think, are, are, are showing promise. But to expect or think that we have AGI anytime soon is just, just silly. And that, you know, accidentally making an AGI is like accidentally building a 747 in your garden shed. It's just not something that's going to happen anytime soon. AI is an extraordinarily powerful computational technique. And it's yielding all kinds of fascinating results in ways that, you know, in, in ways that will bridge the gap between now and quantum for things like understanding molecular dynamics and understanding chemistry and understanding protein folding and those kinds of things that's showing, showing good progress. And love that, love that stuff. And we're very much about, you know, applying the, the right uh, hardware and the right software to accelerate uh, that. And that will be, you know, those tools will be used to do good and to, to make a dent in the world in a positive way. But applying them to, you know, selling my meta character a different hat is not, not anything that we're interested in or care about. And I don't think anybody else should either. Something I want to go back to from earlier in the conversation was around this lack of capital generally available for these companies that are deeply technical. And some of that, of course, is the byproduct of very few firms focusing on this. Of course, there's the Luxes and the DCVCs that have been doing this for some time. But in order to, of course, deploy, you have to raise money from LPs. Many of these LPs, at least historically, have been quite reticent to invest in funds that are 
in turn investing in companies that at least have the perception of being very binary and capital intensive. I'd be curious just to hear your experience in working with LPs from Fund One to now, and not only what resonates, but also the type of LPs that you found be most comfortable with this type of investment thesis. You mentioned Lux and DCBC. We 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 love those guys. We can't invest with those guys. I think they're they're smart and they you know have very good taste in the categories they invest in. And I think that their success is also a reflection of an increased sophistication in LPs about wanting to invest in things that are important, right? And that that have the potential of really uh, really moving the world forward. There is a very clear pattern around the recognition of the importance of decarbonization, the importance of climate, and the importance of investing in these non-trivial technologies. And with that comes the recognition that that these things aren't going to, you know, you're not going to get an exit in a year, but there is no conflict between investing in these transformative, important decarbonization companies and making a ton of money. I like money as much as the next guy. I love the idea of, of doing something which is worthwhile, but also returning a bunch of money to my family and, and RLPs. But uh, that increased focus of, from you know, family offices on up, of I want this capital to do something worthwhile. I want to be able to reflect on the thing I built with this in partnership with you guys um, that you know I can be proud of, and that that there's no point there's no point in concentrating capital if you live on a cinder. So that's an overwhelming thing in our conversations with with existing and future LPs that I think is incredibly positive um, and also puts us in a position, I think, to uniquely satisfy the urge for that money to find ground and things which are, which are practical. Did you find that to be the case several years ago when you were starting, or were there unique inflection points, either from a firm perspective or more macro, that really changed the dynamic of how LPs were looking at firms like yourself? I think COVID was very sobering for everybody, right? The certainly in deal flow, we've seen a real change in, you know, people who want to reduce their life's work to practice suddenly got serious about what am I doing? Like why am I why am I working on targeting ads? Feynman was my advisor, like why am I doing this nonsense? Why not do something worthwhile? That was a real, really evident. Um, very, very early in the in the pandemic, certainly in the domain of therapeutics and the domain of, of of these companies at the boundary of life sciences and computation, a dramatic and and very clear discontinuity in the quality and quantity of deals in that space. But I think broadly, people are just like, what, am I? I cannot waste my life while these existential threats. And I think the you know the dumpster fire of U.S. politics also had something to do with that. But it's really different. The last two years have been very, very different. And candidly, I, I think that when we think about the, the consequence of market, the inevitable market correction at some point in the next year or two, um, that will also be a sobering and focusing function where people are thinking about non-trivial ways of spending their lives. And I do think the the last 19 months, 20 months now, have given people this view of what am I doing with my life and taking inventory of what actually matters. And we've actually seen this with a lot of the family offices we've worked with that have said, I don't want to invest in funds or companies that are doing effectively the same thing that are not actually bettering our lives in some way. 
And we've seen climate funds come to market. You know, Lower Carbon was an example of a larger fund that came to market really to help with the decarbonization and really help with the climate. One last question I have for you, and this is more just looking back on your, your career, both as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, as now an investor, what has been the most transformative piece of career advice you've ever received? Oh, can I, can I cheat and say that there's a couple? We'll let you cheat. Yeah. I, look, my dad used to say, if you're going to do a job, do a job. And, you know, Sagan used to say, if you're going to you know, do something worthwhile, I've tried to live by that. I'm also fond of, uh, I think it was Feynman who said, words to the effect of, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Fundamentally challenging the status quo is absolutely necessary at the moment. And, you know, well, you can't fly planes on hydrogen or you can't do this, you can't do that, or you can't build a quantum computer and you can't X, Y, and Z. You know, any, any number of examples in my career where I've come up against, broken my pick on, on large industries who refuse to accept that there are other ways of thinking and other ways of doing things, you've got to push through that stuff because we're at a, at a point where we're sort of out of time. And that it's going to take that kind of thinking and that kind of aspiration to, to, to move it forward. Well, those are great things. And it, it does speak to that intellectual curiosity to get to a place to determine what really is the art of possible. And that ties back to what we've talked about before, which is investing between the improbable and the impossible. So I'm really excited to, uh, to continue to chart the progress of you and the rest of the Playground team. This has been a greatly illuminating discussion on all things that you see in the market. I do do expect and I do hope we see more capital going toward these companies. And I really appreciate you being on the show today, Peter. Look, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Really appreciate the thoughtful questions. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Peter. To learn more about him or Playground Global, be sure to go to ventureunlock.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Capital is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.